Good morning. It's wonderful to be here with you guys. Um, I already talked with Colin over there, and he asked me how, how I like England. Um, this is only my second time I am in England. The first time was like 20 years ago, so it was high time to come back. Thank you very much for the invitation, Ant and Helen. <laughs> um, it's, I really like it. Uh, I love to see the difference, and uh, it's a different feel. But we, you know, we have the stereotype what British people are like, and I actually enjoy the confirmation of the stereotype. I love it. <laughs> I, I love to come here and say, "Nadia, isn't that so British? This is just so fantastic." <laughs> so you are, <laughs> you are some wonderful people. Um, Maybe, maybe we, I, I know some of you, but maybe we can have just a little tiny little bit of introduction. Uh, maybe we can just go around and it would be good if you just say your name and in one sentence, why you love Jesus. It doesn't have to be the most profound thing. You don't have to come up with, you know, because of the soteriolo soteriology of whatever, or it doesn't have to be the most central, central thing. Just something where you, where you connect with him and say, in that way I have tasted his goodness, or because of that I love him, because of that I follow him. Can we do that? Okay, so let's give us 10 seconds. You can, you can think, and then we go. We'll start. Isn't that wonderful to hear from each other? And just imagine there are some people here who don't know Jesus, and who would hear that? You know, what would it do to people like that? I mean, Helen sits there and she says, I'm almost crying. <laughs> just imagine somebody with no hope sits here and hears that something that you have to say. Isn't it interesting that every one of you has a deposit of the kindness and goodness of God in your life? So that's what we're going to talk about in, in the next two hours with us. Um, I think I want to invite you to go on a little journey with me to the book of Philippians. And then uh, uh, we will uh, also talk about uh, how that deposit that God has given us, that kindness, how we can pass it on to other people. And at the beginning, I have to confess and I have to admit that for the people who were there yesterday, I promised too much. Um, I promise we will go through all of Philippians and I will show you how the different parts <laughs> belong to each other. And then I realized when I went to bed tonight, no, we only have two hours and half of it we want to spend doing something practical. Uh, no, I'm very sorry, I promised too much. I will not be able to do that. But that I heard that Ant was already going through Philippians for a long time. Um, so I will only pick up those parts where I will seriously correct him and then <laughs> and then that hour will be, will be enough and then we'll, we'll do something practical. All right, uh, first of all, thank you, Chris. Maybe we can uh, put on the PowerPoint. And I want to, first of all, invite you into the city of Philippi because to understand uh, uh, any letter that the Apostle Paul has written, uh, we need to understand something of the, uh, of the nature of the recipients. Because Paul is a very skillful orator, but he uh, uh, formulated um, his message and he adopted his message in each letter according to the recipients. So in order that when he wrote, they might have, uh, when they read the letter, they may have a powerful impact. So each, each of Paul's letter um, has what we call in German, it's a theological term, it's called a leitmotiv, which means it's a, it's a major motive that runs throughout all the letters, and that is different in each letter. 
let me give you an example for you to understand what I'm saying. The book of Ephesus, uh, the book of Ephesians, which was written to Ephesus, when you look at the book and you say, well, what kind of metaphors does Paul use there predominantly? It's all building language. It's building terminology. Um, you are built on the foundations of the apostles and with Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. The whole building grows into a whole temple of God. The whole ladder is full of building terminology. It's full of, uh, uh, yeah, of, of building. And why is that? Because in Ephesus stands the most magnificent building of antiquity, the building of Diana of Ephesians. So when Paul wrote to Ephesus, he's not using military language because there's hardly any military in Ephesus. Why should he? So he's using something that grabs the attention. And when he uses the word great, uh, that you may know the great power of Jesus Christ, he uses a word that we know only from the local context of Ephesus. So when they hear great, they, go, they automatically know, know, yes, that's the word that we're always chanting, great is Diana of Ephesus. And so there is an immediate connection with the local color. Um, we, for those people who were there yesterday in the preaching, we have seen that um, in the pastoral epistles, so in Timothy and Titus, Paul uses predominantly stewardship language. Uh, like uh, when you entrust something to a steward and he has to handle with it well, deal with it well. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he predominantly uses slave language. And that is because the city of Corinth um, was founded or was refounded. The ancient Greek city was destroyed by the Romans, but then when it was refounded in 46 BC by Julius Caesar, he founded the city by sending former slaves that had been freed because there were too many in Rome, too much overpopulation, just like in London. And uh, so <laughs> he, he had to move some people out, so he took some freedmen and said, I'll give you some land, you can move to the city of Corinth, and we are founding it in Noom, we're founding it as a Roman city. And also because there has been, there's an unusual high concentration of slaves working in the city of Corinth because of the harbor, because of the peninsula, the weather is, the weather is really bad in that area, so what uh, uh, you would do is, or what people back then would do is, the ships that came from the east would come and dock on in the one peninsula, and the ships would be carried over, they put the ships on wood rolls and carried them over and transported over land for four miles, six kilometers, and then at the other end, put it into the water again. And most of the time, of course, they took the cargo out first, transport the cargo separately, whatever. All these things were done by slaves. So high concentration of slaves in Corinth, use slave language. So I want to invite you and come with me to the city of Philippi and see what is famous for Philippi. What, what is Paul, Paul's angle on Philippi? What is something that grabs the heart of the people of Philippi? And here we are. And I will, I will start with one of my own famous quotes. Uh, <laughs> uh, if I once said, and written, have written it down, if Julius Caesar would not have been killed 44 BC, Paul's letter to the Philippians would never been, have been written. Well, that's a daring statement because Paul's letter was written about 50 AD, and from 44 BC to 50 AD, we have about 100 years. My goodness, you ask me, what in the world does the death of Caesar have to do with the book of Philippi? Well, here we go. I want to explain it to you. 
uh, I indeed think that this man is one of the direct causes of, the, of Paul's letter to, to Philippi. This is Julius Caesar, at least according to Asterix and Obelix, if you like them. If you are more into reality, you will enjoy the next picture. Um, <laughs> uh, that's a bust uh, of, the, uh, of the famous dictator. Uh, this is his death, um, or at least it is portrayed by a more modern artist in 2012. Uh, Brutus and Cassius are seen here as stabbing Julius Caesar um, because uh, he gained too much power and because uh, they wanted to prevent him before he went on another military expedition to the Parthians. They wanted to use an, an appropriate time to get rid of him in order that his power as a dictator might not be become too strong. So what happened next is um, the, Repu the Roman Republic split into, I'll make it a little bit more easy because the history is more, more complicated there, but for our purposes we can simplify it a little bit. Um, the Republican split into two parts. You had Brutus and Cassius at the one side, the freedom fighters. And here we see that person who wielded the dagger now is printing or actually minting his own money and he is advertising his heroic deed because you know you need to form public opinion um, was it a fight for freedom or was it a ter terroristic act it always depends on the angle you look at <laughs> so he wants to create his own angle and he public you know he publicizes in the mints this is your number one advertising advertising uh, opportunities in the first century um, he uh, public publicizes his ideas on, on a mint. Um, you have his own portrait on the one side of the coin and on the other side you have the dagger by which Julius Caesar was killed. You have the date, the Edis of March, which means uh, the middle of March, the 15th of March. And then you have a cap which you use when you set a slave free. We know it from other sources and other pictures. You put the cap on a slave in a setting free ceremony and that symbolism portrays what we did, what I did together with Brutus, uh, whatever, whatever I did together with Cassius was a freedom fight and now the Republic is free again. On the other side, we have the actual heirs of Julius Caesar. Um, uh, Julius Caesar had a will and when the will was opened, um, to the surprise of many, Octavian, who is on the right, he, he will become the first Augustus, uh, the first Roman emperor um, was named the heir uh, of Julius Caesar. But we also have his military general, whom everybody expected to be the heir on the left-hand side. His name is Antony. Um, and then we have a third person. His name is Crassus, uh, but he soon leaves the scene. So for our purpose, we can just uh, remember we have uh, Antony and Octavian on the one side. Um, they are the followers, they are the heirs of Julius Caesar. They will take the same sort of policy that Julius Caesar had and we have the freedom fighters or the terrorists on the other side, which would be Brutus and Cassius. These two powers um, over the course of two years built up massive armies and eventually it comes down to a huge showdown. It comes to the hugest and the biggest fight and the greatest civil war the Roman Empire has ever seen. And that fight takes place at the site of a little deserted village called Philippi. And here we have it. Um, we ha I just uh, put you some, some numbers on. Um, on the site, 
um, of the freedom fighters. They have 19 legions uh, with about 5,000 people each. So we have about 100,000 Roman foot soldiers, 33,000 horse riders, plus auxiliary troops, which are troops from befriended nations. So you have uh, approximately 200,000 people on one side. On the other side, the Republican, we have all, uh, we also have 19 legions, but they are not quite full, 17,000 17, horse riders and also uh, 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 fighters from befriended foreign nations. Uh, the history of the world has never seen something like that before. And we can't, we can't approach that, that number with our numbers. We c you can't come with, well, London has, how many inhabitants has London? Six million, eight million? Yeah, eight million, something like that. Uh, the, uh, the population in the ancient times is much, much smaller than it is today. And when you have 400,000 people in one spot, uh, that is a massive undertaking. Anyway, at the, uh, at the gates of that village of Philippi, the battle happens. Uh, we know exactly where their, uh, where their camps are. We have on the one side Octavian and Mark Anthony. Remember, these are the heirs of Julius Caesar on, on the west side and on the east side, Brutus and Cassius. Uh, this is the site, as it looks today. This is the battlefield. Uh, here I am um, at the place where Cassius had his camp, and I'm pointing out that military general over there is pointing out uh, <laughs> where Brutus has his camp and uh, making some signs of communication over there. Okay, so that's the battle site again from Brutus's position. Um, here we have an artist's uh, depiction. Uh, of what happened uh, at the first at the first battle, uh, Mark Anthony. Oh, this is actually this is going to be interesting. I don't know if we get to it. This is going to be interesting for something that Paul writes in the book of Philip in the book of Philippi. Uh, yeah, at the book to the Philippians. Um, here we have the combined, or here we have the camp of Brutus and the camp of Cassius. What happens on the, first, on the first day of the battle is uh, they, they come together, they fight. Brutus overruns the camp of Octavian. And the soldiers of Octavian, they flee to the west. And what a huge mistake that Brutus' soldiers do, are doing is as soon as they enter the camp, they go, they go after the spoil. So they look what they have hidden all their gold, all their silver, all their valuables, and they collect all of those and spend a lot of time in the camp of Octavian. That gives the enemy position time to reassemble, to reform over here, and to re-enter the battle at a later stage. This is a huge disadvantage, and this is something what you should not do in a battle. Every general will tell you, you don't go after the spoil. You first conquer the enemy. And then you go after the spoil, and that's something that Paul, uh, 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 that that idea is something that Paul will take up in his letter. At the same time, Mark Anthony over here um, uh, uh, captures the camp of Cassius, or he, he he wins he wins yeah he captures the camp of Cassius. Cassius flees up here to the hill, and then what happens is Cassius wants to know how the battle side on this with these two generals went. And he sends uh, some, because 
of the dust that's happening. Nobody can see actually what's going on. You hear shouting, you hear clamoring. And so he sends um, uh, a horse, um, yeah, a couple of horse riders to, to check on how Brutus is doing. So the horse riders find out that Brutus is actually successful. They want to come back to Cassius, and as they come back to Cassius, they're shouting and they're going, victory, victory, victory for us. And because Cassius, he's actually, he has bad eyesight, he doesn't see that his own troops are coming or returning to him and declaring victory. He thinks the enemy is approaching him, is declaring victory, he commits suicide. And even though he is the winner of the day, the winner of the first battle, he, he, loses, he loses his life. And with losing Cassius, you lose the most able general in the battle. And that will be determinative. Determinative. <laughs> Sorry for my, <laughs> for my broken English. Uh, that will be important for the next battle because for the, ne the next battle is decided solely on the ground of who has the more advanced and the more skillful general because this is a criteria in whether the w a war will be won. You have a great general, he is skillful, he knows how to win victories. That's you know, you, you, you're sitting here and you go like, why in the world are you telling me that? You know, I came here for religious education, but not for military <laughs> exercises. But it has all th everything has to do with the book of Philippi, believe me. Is this just a little preview? It will make sense a little bit later. So you need the skillful general. If you don't have a skillful general, if you don't have somebody able to lead the troops into battle, you're gonna lose. Do you have a super competent general? You are more, you are confident of winning, of winning the battle. All right, so what happens? Cassius is out, you only have Brutus. Brutus has very little influence into the army. And what Brutus, what what, the, uh, what Brutus' advisors are doing uh, is the only way for support for, um, uh, uh, yeah, for, uh, for food to arrive at this place is over a port city, which is over here, and it comes through on this road, the Via Egnatia, to Philippi. It comes from the city of Neapolis for the Greek people over there. Uh, we'll, I'll show you a map just in a second. And what the advisors of Brutus are, do, are saying is just hold still. Just don't do, do anything. We'll starve these people out. Because what happens at the same time, the Navy support of these people, that their Navy is completely wiped out at the ocean just over there. So they have nobody to bring supplies to them anymore. These guys have wonderful supplies. They have everything they need. But Brutus is a weak general. And Brutus, he cannot lead the, his massive army. And his, the, the first couple of soldiers are defecting uh, to the enemy lines because Brutus cannot motivate them. He cannot keep up with them. And so eventually Brutus, the weak general that he is, he doesn't have Cassius on his side anymore, gives in to the demand of another faction that is part of his army that says, let's just risk it and let's just start another fight. Brutus does give in to the impulse and this time Brutus loses his Octavian wins this time, and the battle is won by the heirs of Julius Caesar. Not by the freedom fighters, but by the heirs of Julius Caesar. Mark Anthony and Octavian are the winners of the day. And so that's why after Philippi, after 44 BC, and that's important for the history of the Roman people, we're, not, we're no longer talking about a Roman Republic 
because it is no republic anymore. It is now a Roman Empire that is led for the next 450 years by an emperor, by a single person, or sometimes you have two emperors later on, but most of the time by a single person, by a dictator who, form, who forms, you know, who, who, leads the, who leads the empire. That will be, that will be very important because um, the people of, of the day, when you know, when you ask the question, where was the place that history was made? How did we come to the place where we are? Everybody will recognize, everybody will know. It was Philippi. We are what we are today because of Philippi. All right, so let's, let's uh, continue. So what happens now? Finally, we, we come to the actual city of Philippi. In Philippi itself, there was not much going on anymore. Um, and um, the, the, uh, the soldiers that had been with Julius Caesar and on, have been now with Mark Anthony and Octavian are tired because they had been in the army for six to eight years already campaigning with Julius Caesar and now is the time where the enemy is finally conquered and Mark Anthony has to do something with his soldiers. He has to uh, 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 give all the promises that they made continuously uh, during the campaign and so what he suggests to the soldiers he says hey guys why don't we found a Roman colony right here where we are. I mean look at the situation beautiful landscape, Greek people, beautiful beaches. Um, you are located right at the Via Egnatia, which is the main highway running from the east to the west. The land right here is good. I'll leave you a bunch of money. Why don't you just stay here? Because coming with me back to Rome is not going to be, you know, we are overpopulated already. Uh, just stay here. And so the soldiers say, okay, that's fine. And so the, the city of Philippi, was populated by veterans, by former army soldiers. And uh, that's also going to be important for, for the letter of Paul to the Philippians. I brought you uh, various coins and we'll just go quickly over it. Um, if I had time, just hold on a second, I'll show you this one. If we had time, I could show you that every single mint, every single coin that is minted in the city of Philippi, every single one without any exception, always has a military motive on them. That is unusual. At, at when you s look at the prints, uh, at the, the, the mints of Ephesus, you have not one single military motive of any of the coins. But at the mints of Ephesus, you, many times, you have symbols of Diana. Uh, you have either her, her, her image of the goddess, or you have hunting symbols because he, she is the goddess of hunting, or you have uh, depictions of the temple, but not one single military motive. At the city of Philippi, everything, every coin has a military motive. These two things, they are not recognizable easily for, for, this, for the person who just sees them. These two, people, these two things are the two altars that Mark Anthony set up the day he won the battle of Philippi and where he sacrificed to the gods saying this sacrifice is a thanksgiving sacrifice to you for our successful battle. And what, this, what, the, 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 sit, the, what the, the citizens of the, Philipp, of the city of Philippi do is years later they still print coins putting on the two altars. But why do they do that? What's the message they want to convey? And every symbol on the mint is a message. 
That's where we got the victory. It's an identity building thing. It's, it's issuing coins saying, we are the place, we are the city where the battle of Philippi was won and where the whole Roman Empire is now what it is because of the battle that took place here, right now, where we are. Um, a little bit later, I wonder if that all interests you, maybe not. So let, let's, let's go back and uh, I'll just make it short. This is, an, uh, this is just to give you a little impression about, ev about mint after mint after mint. It's all military symbols. This is a mint that now comes not only from Mark Anthony, but that comes uh, from Octavian, who will be, uh, at the time of the mint, the already the first emperor. And what happens here, he is depicted himself. Oh, by the way, do you see the two altars again? Right here? These are not his altars. These are the altars of his, of his body. Because you remember that the two fought together. So these are the altars of Mark Anthony. But now Augustus himself stands on the paddle right here. And Julius Caesar stands behind him. He is already dead, but he is personified as still living. And Julius Caesar holds up a crown of victory over Octavian. And what happens is Octavian prints his own money. That has to do because the two bodies quickly started falling apart, had their own, had their own fight. At the end, Octavian wins. And now you cannot, uh, Anthony doesn't want to have all those coins with those two altars that always remind the, 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 the Philippian people of Mark Anthony. It's like, you know, next election, whoever wins, maybe it's not Boris Johnson. You don't want to remember Boris Johnson anymore, so you issue new money that has the next guy on them. So I don't care about who wins. I'm not the British people. You have to sort that, you have to sort that out yourself. <laughs> so no political statement from me, just an illustration. So let's go back to, to, to the, uh, forward to the next one. So this guy prints his own money puts his two altars over here, and even though Mark Anthony was the one who actually won the victory, this guy, remember, this guy over here, his camp got overrun, and he was actually fleeing uh, uh, the battle scene. He rewrites history. The winner always rewrites the history. He, he rewrites history, and he portrays himself on the coins as the actual winner of the battle, and he does so by putting these two altars here that don't belong to him and say, actually, the victory was my victory. He is crowned the victor, even though his former body was actually the victor. Then uh, Augustus, he, he builds himself a huge triumphal arch. This is the one, uh, how it was rediscovered in the 19th century. This is uh, how, archaeology, how archaeologists reconstructed what the arch looked like. And this is what it looks like today. <laughs> um, we, now I want to introduce you uh, to the second missionary journey of Paul. Because now, enter 100 years later, Paul starts from Jerusalem on a second missionary journey, revisits the places that he where he had founded um, his churches on the first missionary journey, uh, moves over here. Here we have, um, in this area, we have the, uh, the description of the book of Acts that Paul didn't know where to go 
and the Holy Spirit forbid him either way to go even down here to Ephesus. Finally, he has the dream where the person uh, from Macedonia, which is over here, uh, appears to him and says, come over here, we need you. Um, Paul and his companions decide, okay, this is a dream from the Lord. We're going to follow his leading. They come to the city of Neapolis. This is what I told you right over here. And just about 50 kilometers north is the city of Philippi. So here, if you, ha if you want to bring in all your support for those 200,000 people that are hungry and thirsty, you had a wonderful opportunity just to bring it over here by ship and then just go those 50 kilo kilometers over here. Paul takes exactly that route. He takes exactly that route that the army took a couple of years ago where the support route was. He lands over here at Neapolis and he takes the Via Egnatia into the city of Philippi. And so we also taken that route, or my wife and I, taking a boat over there. Paul unfortunately misses that beautiful island, the island of Tassos, but uh, this is, the, this is the, the, the road that he takes right over here via Egnatia, and he goes right into here, into Philippi. Uh, those are the city walls. And this is the entrance of the city. This is the so-called the so Nea uh, Neapolis Gate. And through this gate, where this person is walking through right there, the Apostle Paul went. I can understand those people who are sort of have this religious awe when they are at places and they go like, oh, wow, I'm right here where Paul went. And it is, it is truly like that. Okay. Uh, when you go to Philippi, you will see indeed everything is Roman. It's not Greek, even though we are in, on Greek territory, everything is Roman. We have a Roman theater. Uh, here, we we, here we have uh, that famous road, the Via Egnatia, uh, in the center of the city. It is still the same way from the, the way it was in the first century. So put your hand on the stone or put your foot on the stone and you are truly walking in the footsteps of Paul. Um, here we have just a, just a little um, yeah, a visual depiction of what the forum, what the central market looked like at the city of Philippi. Just to give you a little impression. This is what it looks like today. And what is very interesting is when you look at the forum, you had all the different shops, markets, temples, and the central square right here. When you look at the different inscriptions, um, like what people have hammered in over here, many of these inscriptions, many of these stones are stones rem uh, commemorating the military success of the people uh, who are citizens of the city when, and with what medals etc uh, etc et they were honored this is also very interesting this is a tombstone of a soldier right at the via Egnatia. so this is very unusual i want to get you a feeling for military things and for military things 50 years or 100 years after the battle actually happened you know because the, the argument goes well paul arrives there 100 years later and i want to show you 100 years later still everything in philippi is about the military Every coin is still about the military. Every uh, mention in the history books, every time, without exception, Philippi is mentioned in the history books in the first century. It is mentioned in connection with the battle that happened there. When you visit the, the city of Philippi, you don't see a grand building like at Ephesus. You see huge stones like that that, are, that have inscriptions of soldiers commemorating the battle and describing how much, you know, what famous battles they have won and all the, all the rewards they have received. Okay, maybe, okay, we can, we can leave it at this. Now I actually want to go with you to the book of Philippians. 
So my argument to you will be that when Paul wrote uh, the letter to the Philippians, what he is doing is he continuously infuses his letter and he transports his theology by using military language and military terminology. Almost everything in the book of Philippians will be written in military terms, military languages, and will have allusions and direct or indirect associations to battle and to fighting. And that's going to be very interesting and very important for how you interpret certain texts. Okay, so let's read together in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, uh, just from, from verse 3 to verse 11. Philippians itself is structured according to a typical Roman speech. And you have certain elements that when you read Philippians that we don't discover because we don't know Roman speeches from the first century. But the people in antiquity knew how speeches were structured in the first century. And so what happened is at the, f at the, the first section, namely from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way until verse 36, 26, you have the so-called exordium. You have a section where the speaker um, outlines his own situation, where he says, I am in this place. I am doing what I'm doing. I, this is my circumstances. The circumstances will have to do with the actual letter at, at the end, but first he describes his own situation. And Paul starts here and he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy in my every prayer for you all because, and now here starts the military language, because in different uh, uh, passages translated differently, your participation in the gospel. But the word is actually the word koinonia. Do I pronounce it correctly, the Greek people? Koinonia. Hmm? Kinonia. I need to think about that. I do the oi as not as an oi, but as a kin. Kinoinia. What does kinoinia mean? Having, com yeah. And thank you very much. That was wonderful. Do you see already that the Greek expert, they're not using one association, but they're, they're, they're blurting out different things the word means. The word means fellowship, but it can also mean partnership. And the word kinonia in the first century has different association depending on the context you're using it. When you use it in the military context, it means you have a military partnership. So what you would do, for instance, and we know that from the, the way history books are written, Herod the Great, which we know also from the Bible, he wanted to join a battle against the Nabataeans. But because he thinks himself that he himself will not win it, he enters a kinonia with some other nations around him and says, do you want to fight the battle with me together against, against the Nabataeans? And every single time, not every single time, but many times, you have nations going on war against other nations. Before the battle happens, kinonias are formed. Military partnership. So what Paul does right in the front here, he describes the relationship he has that's going to be very important for the rest of the other. He describes the relationships he has with the Philippians and says, Philippians, I remember from the very first time I entered your city, we formed a military partnership. We formed a kinonia. And that's going to be interesting for the rest of the letter. 
partnership uh, in the gospel, uh, and uh, because we don't have the time, let me uh, 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 give it to you and explain to you right now. It means I thank you for our, for our military partnership for the advance of the gospel from the first day until now. Um, look, look at me with from the first day until now in verse 5. And then go with me all the way to the end of the book of Philippians in chapter 4. In verse 15. In verse 15, it says the following. As you Philippians know, at the beginning of my gospel ministry, do you see that? That is what, you, what, uh, what uh, um, linguistics explain to us is an inclusio. The beginning of the gospel ministry in 4 verse 15 is the same thing as in 1 verse 5, your participation in the gospel from the first day. Do you see? First day and beginning. First day gospel, beginning of the gospel. What, what that means is Paul is here referring to the same thing that happened. And what he writes in 4.15, it says, At the beginning of my gospel ministry, when I left Macedonia, which means when he left the city of Philippi, after he had been there a couple of weeks, and when he left, this happens. Uh, no church shared with me in this matter of giving and receiving except you alone. And the, uh, the word or the phrase, the matter of giving and receiving is a, is a, uh, a commercial term that also uh, appears in the military context. And if I had time, I can show you um, pictures from military receipts and military books that we have, where you have books that are called with exactly these terms. They are there's the Logos, the Logos is the, called the, the book, the accounting book, and the word giving and receiving is incoming money and outgoing money. And what Paul says here in 4.15, he says, nobody shared with me in the idea that a soldier has to have incoming money and outcoming money, because this is what happened. This is also the idea that Paul writes in, uh, in the book of Corinthians. He says, no one ever goes on a military campaign on his own expense. No, somebody pays him, and from whatever gets on the records of receiving, the soldier spends money for his military equipment. So let's say in the Roman Empire, three to four times a year, the soldier gets a huge allowance uh, sort of in his, in his book, in his record. And at the receiving, he receives, let's say, 200 denarii. And then on the other side, at the same day he receives the money, are the expenses deducted, which means he gets new military boots, two denarii subtracted. He gets food for his horse, five denarii distracted. He gets a new shield because he lost his old shield in battle, 10 denarii deducted. So the whole idea of nobody shared in giving and receiving is, is, the, is part from the military terminology and it means we were on a military partnership together. I went out and I left with you fighting for the advance of the gospel and you were my military partners and you said, Paul, we're going to support you. We're going, this is part of the support. This is part of the military partnership. I don't know if you, 
if you've been if you have aware of world politics, but this happens in South Korea at the moment. Trump tries to get all his money that he spends on other various things now from places where his troops are stationed. Have you have you read that article? And he's pushing the South Koreans to pay him, I think, 4.7 billions of US dollars. Have, have, did anybody read it? No, nobody read it. Okay, well, check Trump, South Korea, the number 4.7 billion US dollars will come up because the President of the United States says, we're supporting you, we've been in a military partnership, but we're the only one who are paying our soldiers there. Now that you are a prosperous nation, you need to be part of the military partnership. Pay us those 4.7 million. So money is part of the military partnership. And this is the context what happens. What happened in, when Paul came to Philippi with his first converts, the first converts were so excited about the gospel, about the fight for the advance of the gospel, that, that they came to Paul and said, Paul, we don't want you to, to do this alone. Let's form a military partnership. You know, you are here in Philippi. Um, we are all military guys. Even we are all the descendants of veterans. Even right now, when you look at the record book, the city of Philippi provides most of the soldiers and the Roman army from our province. Everything in the city, if you look at our coins, if you look at our monuments, if you look, go into our library and read the history books, everything you find about Philippi is military, military, military. So Paul, let's describe the relationship we have in something we know. Let's describe it in a military, military terminology. And let's do this. We form a military partnership. We do this together. We're going to go on a battle together and we fight together for the advance of the gospel. And Paul says, is that really what you want to do? And everybody in the small Philippian church says, this is what we do. We're going to be victorious. We know our Lord. We know whom we're fighting for. We know the value of the gospel. This thing will end in victory. We will send the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Paul looks at these people and says, guys, I love you. Let's go in a military partnership. Let's do it. And the Philippians, they get practical. The moment he leaves, he says, here you have a bunch of money. We know in giving and receiving, we know a soldier doesn't go out on the battlefield and at the same time he has to work. We provide for you. You go to the next, you go to the next place, you go to Berea, and you will proclaim the gospel free of charge over there. And while you're over there and we support you financially, we, we, we will reach our local people. We will tell our families, we'll tell our friends, this, we are on a victorious campaign together. So they thought. So they thought. <laughs> and now in a minute, <laughs> there comes a little bit of a letdown. <laughs> okay, let's have a look what happens. First of all, Paul writes and says, I thank you for, for your kinonia in the gospel, for your milita military partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in your midst will perfect it in the day of Jesus Christ. And now comes something difficult. And that's why I told you all about the military thing. Uh, thank, it's just so wonderful to have some Greek people in your church. Uh, the word ergon, do I say it right? Uh, yeah, ergon. It means work. Does it mean a lot of a film? Isn't that interesting? 
film. In, in the modern sense. So it's very interesting to have, to have some real Greek people because whenever, wherever I am and I explain people that a word can, mean, can have several meanings, they look at me and they go like, you want to deceive us. And I go like, no, I don't. <laughs> That's the way language works. You have ergon. It can mean, for example, that can mean show, a film. Now, is Paul saying God who, from the, who began a good show in your midst, who did a good film in your midst, is he saying that? No, of course he's not. Because he has, you have to look at the context how Paul is using that word in the context and that will determine its meaning. Now, I, I am very sorry. Um, I only have a German dictionary, but I could have very easily gone to an English dictionary as well. If you have a Greek-English dictionary, but ancient Greek, and you look up the word ergon, right over here, it gives you several meanings what that word can mean. And let me read, unfortunately this is just German, let me read to you what it can mean. It can mean the work, a deed, uh, a, business, uh, a business adventure, something that happened, a job, something you do, business, and then here comes very interesting, Krieg is the German word for war or battle. The word Kampf means battle. A, something difficult, a piece of art, uh, and several other things. So you have one Greek word, and it can mean 20 different things. But what does it mean here? It depends on the surrounding context. And I want to suggest to you that what this word here means right now is that Paul says, God who began a good battle in your midst, he will complete that battle. It doesn't mean that God did a, a piece of art, a sculpture in your midst, or that he God did a business deal in your midst, or that he made a movie in your midst. God started a battle. So what Paul is again referring to, he is referring to the mutual fight that he and the Philippians are on. And we see that I want to give you proof. I know half of you are excited and they're sort of you look they're looking to your Greek people over there and you're going like, is he right or is he not? They're right now they're nodding, that's good for you. And the other part is still unconvinced because your English Bible says work, and you are not very quickly convinced that the word actually means battle. But I want to show you something very interesting where you will have proof that Paul in the book of Philippians uses the word ergon as battle. Let's go to somebody in chapter two. Uh, chapter 2, verse 30. From verse 25 on, Paul commands a co-worker, uh, it's not a co-worker, it's actually uh, a somebody from the, city of from the city of Philippi, and the person is called Ephraimitis. Do you see that, verse 25? That's a, it's a native, it's a local of Philippi, who has carried the money that the Philippians are continuously raising for Paul all the way to Rome. And Paul says the following here about I have, I have considered it necessary, necessary to 
my coworker, it's the Greek word soon ergon, we will see in a minute what that means. And then see another word, it's very clear. He is my sustratiotein. What, what does that mean? Soldier. He is my fellow soldier. Do you, do you notice that Paul is using military language? He's not saying I'm sending you my cook or my household keeper. He's not using stewardship language like we had yesterday, saying I'm sending you back the steward. He's saying I'm sending you back my soldier. And when you actually then look at the other words that are not so clear, even the word brother and even that the word soon ergon, now that you have a military term, all three are military terms. The word brother is on the lips of the general when he addresses his army. He says to his bodies, brothers, we are together, brothers. I don't know how you call people in, in, in your military. Yeah, brothers in arms, brothers in arms. And so we see Paul again, he describes Epaphroditus as a military partner, as his soldier who's with him to, together. Okay, let's, let me see how he, how he describes him. He is your messenger and minister to my deed. It's, by, by, it's also military terminology, but we will not go into it because I want to go to one word. Indeed, he greatly missed all of you and was distressed because you heard he had been ill. In fact, he became so ill that he nearly died. But God showed mercy to him and not to him only, but also to me, so that I would not have grief on top of grief. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you can rejoice, and I can be free from my anxiety. So welcome in, in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, since it was because of the, and now we have the same word again, because of the ergon of Christ, he almost died. He risked his life so that he could make up for you inability to serve me. Do you see in verse 30 the word work, the Greek word ergon? So, here also in verse 30, you have to decide how are you translating the word? What meaning are you importing to the word? Are you saying for the work of Christ, which means for the artist's work of Christ, for the, for, the, for, the, for the sculpture of Jesus doing a wonderful painting or piece of art, he almost died. Does that make sense? No, it does not. <laughs> The metaphor has to make sense. He says, for the work of Christ, he almost died. In, with which metaphor does the whole argument make sense? In the business of Christ, he almost died. Who of you almost died while doing business? Hardly. <laughs> Who of you almost died while sculpturing a nice piece of art? <laughs> and who of you not literally but who dies in the battle that's the metaphor that Paul is using he's using the, the word ergon in the military sense he says for the battle of Christ he almost died and now it makes sense because in the battle you risk your life and in the battle you die not when you sculpture something or you're doing a business deal or something like that do you see you see how it's infected with military terminology? So now, when you have Ergon at 2.20 in 2.30, and it means battle, for the battle of Christ, your likelihood that two chapters previously, Paul is using the same word in a completely different sense is very slim. 
but it's more likely that he stays with the metaphor throughout the book. And so we have strong indications that when Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 6, can you believe it? Talking one hour, we're still in verse 6. When he says, he who again began a good work in you, he actually means who he who began the good battle in you, he will complete it until the day of Christ. Now let me tell you what the thought is that Paul is using here. God starting a battle is something that is not new to somebody who has been familiar with the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, there's two ways battles are started. Humans starting battle and God starting a battle. Tell me, when God starts a battle, how does it end? Always, without any exception from the Old Testament, every time God initiated the battle, it will end in victory. That's why David prays when he goes in the battle every single time. David, except for very few occasions, and then it goes wrong. Every time he starts into battle, he's, he first prays and says, God shall I attack. And God says, go. God initiates the battle. David goes, and the thing goes well. David knows the principle. If God's in the battle, we'll win. If God's not in it, you better don't start the thing. If God starts the battle, he completes it. And now let me tell you what's happening here, what Paul is doing. The Philippians, I told you, and we'll see it in a minute, have been sorely disappointed, thinking they're losing the battle for the advance of the gospel. And we will see it very clearly in a minute. The Philippians are so discouraged, they meet in a small place like this, and they count themselves, they look around, and they go like, I see 20 people. London has 8 million. We're losing the battle. And by the way, the government is after us. They want to close the building. And by the way, they've imprisoned the pastor. Ant and his wife are somewhere, well, we don't know, but we know they are behind the bars. That's the situation in first century Philippi. Paul, remember, he is in prison. And I told the group yesterday, we don't have to look at the, at the, at the, at the, at the, at the book from our sense of church history, we are 2,000 years after and we go like, you know, easily comfortable. Well, you know, it's like, why do they doubt? The gospel will go to the nations. It will reach people from Hong Kong. It will reach people from Greece. It will reach the British people. Why do they doubt? They don't have that feeling. The gospel is new. The gospel is at the beginning stages of its advantages, of, of its advances. They don't know how church history is going to work out. They only know Paul has been their, go is their, is their, is their great fighter and now their great hero who's done so much for the advance of the gospel is in prison and probably is going to die in a few months. And the Philippians are pushed and persecuted from their own local countrymen and they seriously think this is the end of the church. It's over. It's over. And Paul has to, has to write a letter and say, God started the good battle. Remember, we made the military partnership. Remember, we said we're going to go and fight for the gospel till it reaches the ends of the earth. And the Philippians say, yes, remember, that was enthusiastic times, but these times are, for by, are over. 
You know? And God says, that wasn't just us in the military partnership. We didn't initiate the thing. God did. It's his idea. He started the battle. He sent Christ to the cross. It's his message. I'm his message carer. He started the battle. He started the fight with the world. He challenged the world and let's say, let's go to war. Let me send out my gospel and reach some people. He was the one who started it. Remember, dearest Philippians, when God started something, how will the thing end? And the Philippians, they're supposed to come out of their discouragement, go like, yes, we know the God of the Old Testament. He doesn't start something and just then suddenly it sort of it crashes halfway down. Whatever God started, it will come supernatural to a success. And God wants to give the Philippians that courage again. It says, let's join the battle again. Let's fight again for the advance of the gospel. Let's go on the mission again confidently, no matter what the circumstances are, that the one who started this thing, he will succeed. So now, how am I, what's the time? I think you want a break, huh? Do you want a break? Yeah. Let me, let me just, let me, let me, sent you out into the break with this one thought. For the people who were yesterday, who were there yesterday, I told you that God uses different metaphors to describe our relationship with him. You are his beloved children. He is the heavenly father. You are his sheep. He is the tender shepherd. Yesterday, I told you the people who are in the preaching or potential preaching team, that God uses a metaphor to describe your relationship with him as a uh, economos, as a uh, slave steward who has to be faithful in what has been entrusted to him. Now I have a new metaphor for you all. God describes your relationship as a soldier in battle for the advance of the gospel. Don't go, don't, and, and, and don't go, I like the sheep metaphor better. <laughs> there is not picking and choosing. It's not either or. You are a sheep and a soldier. If you're a sheep, you are a soldier. If you're no sheep, you're no soldier. And let me say it this way in all seriousness, if you're no soldier, maybe you're no sheep. The metaphor counts for all of us. It's no picking and choosing. We are soldiers for the advance of the gospel. And I will show you when we come back after the, after the, after the break that what... God wants to instill in you a, a, a sense of confident victory. A sense of, well, look at me, small little, you know, humble person living in St. Albans. And God says, I want you to lift your eyes to a super victorious general. We will see him, we will see him in a minute. I want you to lift your eyes to see that God is on the move. He is in a war. And when you join the war, he does wondrously things with you and through you. Join enthusiastically the battle for the advance of the gospel. That's what we'll do after the break. All right. Okay. So Paul continues... His prayer for the Philippians, his prayer has to do, he uses bo body, we are bodies language, verse 7. He says, for it is right to think this all about you because I have you in my heart. That is, it comes from the military language. That's what the general says. I'm in your heart. You are in my heart. We are on this thing together. That is brotherly connecting language. Military, brother in arms connecting language. Because both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So again, we have 
the idea of we are in this together for the, the fight of the Gospels, you, be, you became, in verse 7, soon koinonus with me. You became together partners to, to get soon kino, kinonus. <laughs> Trying very hard to get closer to the Greek. Uh, you became military partners of God's grace together with me. For, and then verse 8, typical military language of two military partners writing together. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the, with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight. And now comes something very important in the Greek. As we will see, it will determine the rest of the letter so that you can decide what is best. But the actual Greek word is the word dokimatsein. Uh, dokimatsein is the way you can test, so you can prove. And then comes some interesting word, ta dioferonta, or ta dioferonta. Is that right? Diafero. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, dia Do you have that word in the present day Greek? Okay, so to inquire about a certain kind of subject. In the first century, it has some interesting nuance, is that it has also the nuance that after you have inquired at, of a certain subject, the things are different than what you originally think they are. So let's say I look at the coffee, doesn't smell good, the package doesn't look good. I say, I'm going to inquire of it. I'm going to do this Greek thing. I'm going to taste it and I go like, oh, it's actually the Aferonta. It's actually different than it really is. Do you know, have that sense also in the... Okay, so, so what Paul is praying is he says, I pray for you... Uh, so that you can prove and you can decide and you can see that the things that are different and we will see in we will see in a minute what he says he says with the naked eye things look a certain way this way but when you look in god's way when you see that the things actually in reality they are different than they think they are it's going to be very interesting very important because only when you see the things that are different only then you can be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Christians cannot just go like, I don't care what I think. Uh, how you think, how you evaluate certain things will then make a difference in how you live and whether your life is pleasing to the Lord or not. So now verse 12. Now we, we come to the first thing that is different. He starts right there. He just said, I pray for you that you may see that the things are different than they appear. And then he goes to verse 12 and he says, let me give you an example how things are different the way you evaluate them and how they are in reality. Here comes the situation. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. This is, how is this different? How is this different? What are the Philippians thinking and how is Paul saying, saying that it's actually different? Well, they think he's been taken out of the battle. He's no longer in the battle. He's in prison. He's out of the picture. 
He thinks he's in prison and therefore nothing happens with the gospel anymore. The gospel is finished and Paul says, no, I want you to know that actually, that what actually helps us to understand is different. I'm not stuck here and the gospel is stuck. No, what appears on the outside as a really bad situation, God uses it as a chance for the furtherance of the gospel that, we have ne- that you would have never imagined. And then he explains it and says, now the whole praetorian, which means the, sol- the, the Roman elite soldiers, how in the world do you get to the highest places of government and rule in the first century? You know, we think ourselves as well. We march victoriously in and we proclaim the victory of Christ. And then, you know, the house of commons will bow their knee and say, Jesus Christ is really, really Lord. And Paul says, you know, God had a supernatural plan. I, it's such a wise plan. I didn't, even, I didn't even think of that. He makes me a prisoner. I end up in Rome. And then I got a daily visit from one of the elite soldiers of the emperor. And every single time, they change guards. Advance for the gospel. Every day, a new guy to talk to. So that by now, the whole elite guard, the whole, your whole elite military unit, the very guys at the top, know the gospel. And that out of a really bad situation. Paul's writing, you have to think, you think different as Christians. You think, what a bad situation. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Think what a glorious opportunity for the gospel. This is the way he says, the whole imperial God and everybody else knows that I'm in prison for the sake of Christ. And by the way, most of the other brothers and sisters, having confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment, are now, now more than ever dare to speak, oh, excuse me, they are to speak the word fearlessly. So the idea is some brothers, we don't know who they are, see Paul in prison and say, oh no, the apostle is in prison. And they don't go like, well, then we should sit down and do nothing and just bemoan our bad circumstances. These other people said, well, is he in prison? Then we need, we need to take over the job. And because he is in prison, Paul says, two things have happened. First of all, I'm not alone anymore. I'm not the alone hero because others have said, Okay, well, if he's in prison, we take on the charge. And so I have multiplied workers. And by the way, right where I am, in this really bad situation, God opened a new chance for the gospel. So let me give you, let me give you a serious theological implication. Serious, serious, serious. You don't expect it from the text. But have you ever noticed that whenever something bad happens to the Christian, the Christian in the Western world, the first question that comes up is, why does God allow me in this difficult situation? And the implication is that God has a duty to prevent anything negative ever to happen to your life. And when it doesn't happen, we start to have a faith crisis. Well, let me tell you this one. Paul says, it was never part of the deal. It was never part of the theology of the first place. It was never a promise ever made, become a Christian and live a carefree life. Never ever. But this was part of the deal. Become a Christian 
and join the victorious army. And I guarantee you, you're in a bad place, I will use it victoriously for the gospel. This was part of the promise. And I'll tell you, let me tell you an example of how my good theology caught up with me in practice. I'm reading this, I'm discovering this, I'm writing this in my book, and I go like, two things. First of all, this is great, this is awesome. The second thing I read it, I go like, I'm in trouble. Because we're not practicing it, we're not living it. But sort of, I comfort myself that I have another two years to finish my PhD, so at least for two more years I will be left alone to my studies. God says, okay, we'll make a, make a little demonstration and see whether you actually not only discovered something, but whether you're actually willing to live it. So here it comes. We have two small children at the moment, maybe two years old and not, not, not even one, and not back then. Uh, we live in this place that we have rented, and uh, Nadia has children's ministry in the morning. Children's ministry means having to be there and early before I have to be there and the kids. So I make a deal with Nadia. How about you take the public transport, because I have the kids, I take the car, a little bit more, little bit more comfortable. You take the public transport to the church, and I take the car, and we come an hour later. Great. My lovely wife leaves with both car keys. <laughs> and I'm preaching at the day. And by the way, you know, I'm, I'm at my PhD, which means we have very little money because all the money that we do get, which is very little, I'm spending on books. So here it comes, I realize half an hour before I have to be there, and the ride takes about 20 minutes, I have no car. So the only solution is to call a taxi. And I'm already calculating taxi, 20 kilometers, that's going to be at least 30 bucks. And I talk to the Lord and I say, this famous saying, this is the woman that you have given me. I'm quoting, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm quoting, I'm quoting scripture. And I, I get mad at God. I get mad at God. I, I go like, I mean, how can this happen? How can you allow this to happen? You know, I'm, I'm your servant. I'm your preaching servant. I'm the most important person in the meeting. How can you, in your sovereignty, allow that woman that you have given me to depart with two keys? <laughs> and I'm saying a lot of other things that I not should be saying. At the same time, <laughs> at the same time, I call the taxi. The taxi driver comes, and for some strange reason, you know, I don't know why, I assume it perhaps the Holy Spirit, I'm getting into the taxi, I'm sitting down, and I have this thing in my ear that says, the things that happened to me actually turned out for the advance of the gospel. So I'm sitting in the taxi seat, and I go like, okay. And I look at the taxi driver, it's a lady, and I can go, go like, to, I say to the Lord in my thoughts, Okay, Lord, I'm willing. Whatever you have planned. And the taxi driver says, okay, where should I go? And I go like, we want to go to the school building over there because we meet in a public school, uh, in, in, a, in a school. And she looks at me and she says, and now here it comes. She looks at me and she says, what in the world do you want to do on a Sunday in the school building? And I realize, here comes the Lord. 
here comes the Lord, here comes the open thing. And I say to her, you know what, that might be something that you might not be familiar with, not the custom. I know it's really weird, but I'm actually going to a Christian church that meets on a Sunday in a building. And I could have stopped there. I could have stopped there. Now we come some, to something practical at the moment. I couldn't stop there and just say, oh, because I'm going to a church service. And then who knows what would have happened. Probably, most likely, as I know Germans, she would have said, all right. <laughs> End of discussion. But because I sort of was convicted that wherever we, you know, the Lord is opening up a chance for the gospel, I did something that I have seen very well work in the church at Taiwan where we have been. I, we had practiced in our circle of friends how to tell our testimony, how to share how we ourselves became a Christian and why we're a Christian. And so I said to the lady, you know what, I'm, I want to go to the, uh, we're going to the school, we're having a, a, a church service, I know, I know how it feels for you, that must be something totally weird on a Sunday to go to a church. Let me tell you why I'm going there, because 20 years ago, I would have also thought that is totally weird. And I told you my story about how I was an atheist, how I lived in South Africa, somebody shared with me from the Gospel of John that Jesus Christ, himself God, became a human being, gave his life on the cross, so that now whoever believes in him, God gives the right to become children of God. And I explained to you, I said, I go there because I have the promise of eternal life. I have the promise that when I die, I will not perish in the grave, but I will live forever with God. Wouldn't that be something interesting? And she looked at me and she said, I have never, ever anybody explained that to me. No, she didn't bow her knee immediately and say, oh, let me become a Christian. But at least she said to me, that is so interesting. Nobody ever explained that to me. And then the ride was over. I paid my 30 bucks and I was happy. It was worth the 30 bucks. Uh, it's opportunities for the gospel. Seriously, seriously. We as believers need a new view on the things that are happening to us. And I preach it at my church. I go all the time. I know you're going on vacation and your car breaks down and you cry out to heaven and say, why, why, why God, since I served you faithfully last year, this, this happened on the spot when I'm going on vacation with my family. <laughs> And the theological answer is because the tow guy needs to hear the gospel. God is doing us a favor when things happening the way they're not happening the way they are. Now, I don't know how you feel, but I'm a perfectionist. I get extremely frustrated when things don't work the way I imagine how they work. I can get mad at the things that I cannot control. And God opens a door for me and he says, look for the opportunity. Look for the opportunity. Look out for the opportunity. So shall we do it practical or shall I say something a little bit more? You can say something more and we'll do it practically. We'll practically. So we will do it in a minute. Let me, let me show you. I think we'll, what we'll, we'll do practical in a second, we will all um, try to share our testimony in two minutes. Because this, we have a misunderstanding about how evangelism works, how reaching somebody works. We think the most spiritual experiences are spontaneously, supernaturally inspired of the Holy Spirit spot. And we that is the mark of super spirituality. <coughs> Anything that is planned, organized, and is not spiritual. But it's not true. One of the most effective ways 
to reach somebody and to bless somebody with a little kiss. And I've seen it when you shared. Every single one shared of you. And everybody had something where I go like, that's precious. Not one of you said anything that's not true, nonsense, or irrelevant. Every one of you had something where I, where I felt like, oh, yes. Oh, yes, that's the Lord. That's my Lord. That's my God. And I think we need to learn to take that experience and be able to tell that experience in two minutes planned so that when that thing happens, when you lose your key and whatever, and the guy who needs to come and open the door, uh, you have something ready, pre-planned. You come with an action plan right there and then because what happens is the dynamic that happens. You never think. You wait for the super spiritual experience. The guy who opens the door for you because you lost your key in the gutter or whatever, the guy comes and you pray quickly and says, on the spot now, Lord, I need something. Help me, help me. What can I say to him? You are so nervous and angry because of the lost key. You are, nothing happens. Nothing happens. But if you have told your testimony already 25 times, it will become so easy to say, thank you very much for opening that door for you. I will say something to you. It has a religious term, but you are a blessing. Thank you for opening that door for you. Let me tell you why I use that word and why I'm so grateful for you. Five years ago, I didn't know Jesus. But then this happened, this happened, this happened. Just tell him while he's starting to work on your thing. And it becomes very easy, something that we have practiced before, something that we have you know, trained to do, written down, memorized. It becomes quickly and easy. You can take the tools out of your pocket and it will truly bless people. Lord. So we will do that later. So let's, let's continue in Philippians. The whole imperial guard and everybody else knows that I'm in prison for the sake of Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, being confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment, now more than ever dare to speak the word fearlessly. And then, let me see. Let me see if I because it needs some time to explaining. Okay, we'll continue. Verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. Some others are preaching Christ from goodwill. The latter do so from love, because they know that I am placed here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, because they think they can cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. What is the result then? Only that in every way, whether it's in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So the idea is that Paul, that Paul is introducing here is that the most important thing is the gospel goes out. Some people do it selfishly. They want to build their own kingdom. They want to build their own little community. They want to be, you know, since they are not fit to be leaders in the secular world, at least be some leaders in the religious world. They're using the gospel for some own gain. Paul says, don't worry. Let them do their thing. The main thing is the gospel goes out. Uh, we'll, we'll judge them on other terms. That's not my question right here. The main thing is gospel goes out, whether in truth or whether some people even use motives to building their church. It doesn't matter. And then Paul, what he is doing is he establishing from verse 19 on a principle on the principle is I will forsake my rights for the advance of the gospel. And let me show you how that works. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, verse 19, for I know this, that this will turn out for my deliverance. That this, this will turn out, here comes the Greek word, soteria. 
the Greek people amongst us, how many different meanings come to your mind when you hear the word soteria? What can soteria? Or salvation? Yeah, but being saved something is also in a non-religious terms, isn't it? Yeah, so for instance, you're drowning and the rescue ship comes in time. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Did you hear that? The rubber rings. The life, life rings. Yeah. Are there soterias? And you think that's a religious ship? It's not. Okay, anything else? Yeah? Okay. Okay, yeah, but that's good. Thank you very much. It's very helpful because what it opens up, it opens up, it shows that one word has several meanings and you cannot just use, go like, oh, because I know soteria, I know so salvation from the book of Revelation, then it's the same thing here. It's not necessarily. Maybe it is. We don't know. But every time you have a word, you look and you go like, okay, well, well how does Paul use that word over here? In what context does it use? In the New Testament, the, so, the word soteria is also used for healing. If somebody is healed, Jesus says, your faith has sozoed you. It has healed you. You know, the, the woman comes with the blood, she touches him, and Jesus says, don't worry. He doesn't say your faith has saved you. Maybe there's a wordplay. She doesn't want salvation. She wanted healing. He says, don't worry about it. You've done the right thing. With faith you touched me, your faith has healed you. So, and you know, in the military context, what the word so, soteria means, it means a victory. So there's a battle. In the battle, you need salvation. You need salvation from the oppressing armies that sort of ooh, closing in. And then when you win, the, the soldiers shout out, soteria, which means victorious deliverance, victory. We, we have not been, we have not been, uh, killed or, or, or defeated, but soteria. So what Paul most likely says here is this will turn out again for victory through your prayers and the help of Jesus Christ. And now he says that it doesn't matter what happens. I know I'm in prison and I don't know what will happen, but I know either way, either way will be soteria. And now he splits off. He splits off the the two possible ways, what will happen to him. Either be released and be able to, to minister again the gospel or be killed. And Paul says, doesn't matter what will happen. This way or that way will be victory. Either way, and I'll show you how. My confident hope that I will in no way be ashamed that with complete boldness, even now as always, Christ, we will be exalted in my body whether I live or I die. Do you see, do you see the, the two options now? Two options. I live or I die. It doesn't matter. If I live, Christ will be exalted. If I die, Christ will be exalted. If I live, it will mean victory. If I die, it will be victory. It doesn't matter which way it turns. It will always be victory. And then he says, for to me, now it becomes very, very difficult. It's one of the most difficult sentences uh, in the book of Philippians. For to me, it just says, to live Christ and die is gain. And you know why it's so difficult? It's because the verb is missing. 
It just says, to live Christ, die gain. And you have to insert the verb. You, you, you say, what do you mean, live Christ? And what happens, how, how, how the Greek works, I, ho I hope the Greeks agree with me, is from the previous context, you subtract the word because the word continues. We already, we already it's in, the, in the technical term, it's called an ellipsis, which means is I don't need to use the same words again and again if I'm keeping with the same subject. For examples, I showed you already an ellipsis in verse 15. He says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. What others from goodwill? Do you see there's also the verb missing? What is missing? Preach. The word preach is there. So, so already in verse 15, Greek person who reads it mentally inserts the verb. It's not there, but mentally you go, I know what you mean. Some are preaching from goodwill and some are no verb there, but I'm inserting it, preaching from envy and rivalry. See it? So, already. Now, look at me. How many times the word preaching is in the context? It's preaching or proclaiming. It's, it's there. Verse 15. Or it starts in, well, start 15, yeah. Some are preaching Christ, number one, from envy and rivalry. Others are preaching. We count the ellipses already. From goodwill. The latter... Preach so from love, number three, because they know I'm placed here for the defense of the gospel. The former, verse seven, preach Christ. Already number four. Do you see preach? Preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely because they think they can, can trouble for me, they cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. What is the result? Only in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is being preached. Number four. All right. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit. My confidence, hope, and I know well I will be ashamed, but with complete boldness, complete boldness is a complete boldness in speech. Parousia is I speak boldly. Number six, now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether I live or to die. And then in verse 21, the verb is missing, and every Greek person who reads it knows what to insert there, for to me, Living means preaching Christ. Don't insert there, living is loving Christ, worshiping Christ. Because I asked the people in the seminary, I said, what word do you want to insert? Uh, of course, I'm not going the track with there. I'm, you know, we're, we're doing structure, we're doing grammar and things like that. And I say, okay, what word do you put in there? And the, the students always go like, Living is Christ, and then they look in their tummy, what they feel like, and then they go like, well, for me, it feels like living is about worshiping Christ. Or others go like, well, for me, living is about depending on Christ, or trusting in Christ, or following in Christ. Well, it's all good, but it's not what the text wants to communicate. The text wants to, for you to draw the word from the context. And Paul defines what he, he is, he, he defines his own life, and he says, my life, if you want to look at my life, and says, Tell me what my life is about. My life is about proclaiming Christ. I will show you. You will see that in a minute why I'm right. For me, to, to live is proclaiming Christ and dying is gain. Because, now under 22, what he does is, he, you remember he splits off. I need, I'll take these two chairs. Living. Dying. Doesn't matter which way God will go. I don't know which way. If I live 
or if I die, Christ will be exalted and will mean victory for me. Now he goes, he goes on the route and in the rest of the verses, he always alternates between this or this, or this or this. So let's say orange is living, gray is dying. Living is proclaiming Christ. Dying means an ad actually means an advantage because I, I gain something. 4, verse 22, now he goes over here. 4, let me explain. If I am going on living in the body, do you see he talks about living again? This will mean, uh, what's the, what does the text say? This will mean fruit from the work. Now let's put, the, let's put the definition that Paul uses always for the word work. It will mean fruit from the battle. So what Paul is saying, for me to live is preaching Christ, dying is gain. Because if I live on, I will get fruit from the battle, meaning the battle of advancing the gospel. I will lose some more people. Uh, and I don't know which I should prefer. I feel torn between the two. I have a desire to depart. Now he's over here. And be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more vital for your sake that I remain in the body means again, live. So what Paul says is following. He says, if I have my two options, dying or living, meaning living for the, for the advance of the gospel, then I go like this. If you ask me, what should I choose? Paul says, actually, if I could choose right now, I actually choose a death sentence. Because that would mean execution and being with Christ, which excels everything that you can imagine. I know I lose everything in this world, but I am with Christ. And you have no idea what being with Christ is like. It is fabulous. Famous, I love it. I, like if you have a choice, you know, I'll be with my Lord any day because that is just glory. And then Paul says the following, but the way I know my Lord is he wants me to give up privileges. He wants me not to decide on what's best for me, but what's best for the advance of the gospel. So if you actually ask me how it will turn out, I think it's in the hands of the Lord and the Lord will give me the more, the more disadvantageous situation, which is being back here, living and proclaiming the gospel. And since I'm sure of this, I know that I will remain, I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in proclaiming the faith so that, so that what you can be proud so that what you can be proud of my increase because of me and I come back to you. Okay, and anyway, 26. So, this is, this is the situation. Now we come to verse 27. If you have questions, we can talk about it later. Just want to come to verse 27. Now, in, you remember I told you uh, in the beginning that from verse 3 all the way to verse 26 is the exordium, which means it's a part of the of the rhetoric that explains Paul's situation. From verse 27 now starts what uh, 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 those people who analyze the speech, uh, what they call the narratio. The narratio is now comes the main argument. All the time Paul has preached, I'm doing this, this is the way I, I'm doing, this is my situation, and he's praying, and you go like, what do you actually want, Paul? You know, Spill it out 
you are not here preaching just for entertainment. You want us to do something. Because speeches in Greece are given so that people motivate to do something, motivate to action. Nobody just sits there and says, let me have a nice speech and you all fall asleep. But the idea is I speak to you so that I can motivate you into a certain way, into doing a certain thing or believing a certain thing. Now in verse 27 is the narratio. In verse 27 is the one exhortation, the one command what you should actually do. And all the rest of the Philippians from, verse, from chapter 2 on is only a support of what the Christian should be doing. Now comes the big surprise. Only conduct yourself in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so that we, we can understand, we, can, we hear that and we go like, okay, I received the gospel and I understand that part of the Christian faith is I live worthy of that gospel, which means I've received a privilege, I know the mysteries of God, I know who Christ is, and then of course I don't go on living as I always live, but I live worthy of the gospel that I have received. And then in a theological seminary, when I teach people how to do exegesis and what to look for, I say, well, tell me please, what is a life worthy of the gospel? And I trick them. And then they again, they look to their stomach, what, they, what their, st their stomach thinks, and they go like, a life worthy of the gospel, and they go like, I'm going to church? And I pretend to nod, like, okay, go on. And they go like, sexual purity and i go like very good where did you get that from and it says from thessalonians because there it says live worthy a life worthy of, of the gospel you're called don't get into sexual immorality i say like, great continue and they go like love your neighbors because very good and then they tell me 20 things and they go like well now tell me what the text actually says because you have to look at the context paul doesn't want you to choose he doesn't give you some idea and then you choose whatever you think but he defines for you what a worthy life of the gospel means okay let me trick you let me trick you who of you would like to live a life worthy of the gospel <laughs> okay and none of the polite british people raises their hands saying you know you are in trouble okay so okay <laughs> okay so so mentally, I assume everybody raised their hands, you know? Everybody mentally, at least in the spirit, huh? raised their hands. <laughs> you want to live? So let me, let me show you what it means. Because now comes the explanation. And I do that trick to my, to my students in the seminary because I want to teach them that context is king, which means the context shows you more clearly than everything else if you have a question what Paul means, what he actually means, what he actually says. Context is king. Conduct yourself worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, that very strange word, when you ask the question, what, what, where does it come from? Whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, it comes straight from the speeches of military generals. When the military general goes into battle, he exalts the troop and he says, by the way, guys, I will be on my horse behind you. I know I will be riding to different kind of troops because I need to oversee what's going on. I want you to do this. doesn't matter whether you're on the right side or on the left, whether you support troops or right in front. Whether I'm present or not, I want you to do go for a certain action because that's the motivation that's needed in the first century. The soldier who knows the general is right behind him, he will give his best. 
the soldier who knows, I don't know where my general is. When he thinks he doesn't know where the general is, when he thinks the general already has fled, he also will flee. That's why the generals always say, whether I'm present or not, doesn't matter. You fight victoriously. I'm with and Paul uses that and says, I know I am sort of your, your small general, whether I am there with you or whether I am not with you. And so the idea is, now comes military term terminology. I should hear from you that you're standing firm in one spirit. And the word stakete, that comes from the word histemi. Is it right? Yeah. That, never mind, never mind. We'd, later. <laughs> It means it's a military, it's a military terminology. And, <coughs> and it is, it, this is what it means. I have a picture for you. Stand in one spirit is something that you individually cannot do by yourself. Standing is the exact opposite of fleeing. But it is more than fleeing. Standing means you boldly stand in your rank next to your brothers and sisters and don't open up the rank. That is stand in one spirit. And what, what, this, what this does is, so I cannot, what I cannot say to you, I cannot say, Paul, you know, go home and stand strong in the spirit. He cannot do that individually. He has to do it together with you all. And you all need each other to fulfill the exhortation. Do you remember? Everybody said internally, spiritually, I want to live a life worthy of the Lord. This is what you, what you have to do. You have to stand strong in one spirit. And what that means is you stand in rank, one soldier after the other, each in its place assigned, and together you fight for the advance of the gospel. And you know why is that important? Because that's essential for the victory. Because in the Roman army, it's not like the Roman army didn't fight like the Germans or the British would do. The Germans or the British, they would just each have their club and then as a group will run together and just each sort of hits wherever he thinks is right to hit. In the, <laughs> in, in the Roman army, there was order and there were every soldier had his exact his place and you put your best body to your right, your best body to your left, and you have the shield over there and you don't lose the rank. You stay there right with your all, with your brothers on your left and the other brother on your right. And you have to do that because if I'm, because as long as you stand together, you're almost invincible. Because look at this. How, when they raise their shields, how can I hurt these guys? It's almost impossible. Because, and please, can you come to, can you please come over here. We are, no, 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 I don't hear you. We are fighting buddies. <laughs> We're fighting buddies. We're together. You have your sword in your right hand, yes. your shield in the left. And so, so now we're standing over here. How are you going to attack us? There is no way. Because behind us are other soldiers protecting our, our back. To the left, for me, there is no space. And to the right, there is also no space where you can attack me. So on the enemies, only in front. We are covered with the shield and we're starting to hit with our sword like this. As soon as I drop out and say, and bye-bye, I'm going. <laughs> this, this side over here, this side over here is the dangerous part. And this is where the enemy can wound him. So if we want to fight for the battle, if you want to win, thank you very much, we have to stand together, each in its place. So for you as a church, and I have to make an apology, I'm preaching not as an expert in evangelism, I'm preaching as the Half-blind chicken. Uh, 
uh, I know what's right and I confess I'm not, pre I'm not living it to the extent and I'm not even, you know, I'm here I'm the hero for fighting together the gospel and you tell me, well, let me come and visit your church. I want to see you doing it. I go like, we're doing it very badly. But I had the two options. Either I saying it, we're doing it very badly and I get cozy with it or I keep on raising the standard and say, we're not living the way we're supposed to live. And so that's why I not come as one as who knows how to do it, but somebody who sees what's right how to live. And I'm still on a journey on, on how to do it. The idea is we stand together, firm in one spirit, with, do you remember how to live worthy of the gospel? With one mind, fighting, it's a military word, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, military, military language. And we are not intimidated by any way by our opponents, by our enemies. Because when we do this, this is going to be the sign of their destruction, but of your victory, a sign which is from God, because it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him while we advance the gospel. Since you're encountering the same military conflict that you saw in me and now hear that I am facing. So the idea is, Paul, Paul is saying is, I know where you are. I know in, even in Philippi, you have the same conflict that I have. Same military battle, which means getting oppressed. People hear the message, don't like it. You have persecution. But the answer to the persecution, Paul says, is not to be intimidated, discouraged, and says, well, in that case, we'll just sit at home and wait until the Lord returns. But the answer is, let's come together Let's, let's go to the battle together. Let's fill in the ranks again. And together as a team, let's march forward again for the fight of the gospel. So all these people who, in the spirit, raise their hand to live worthy of the gospel, you know what the worthy life worthy of the gospel means? Look for your partner in the church. Look for somebody who has a zeal for reaching other people and team up and say, what shall we do? What can we do to advance the gospel? That is a life worthy of the gospel. If somebody asks me, he says, tell me how can I live a life worthy of the gospel? What does Paul in 127 to 30 says? It says, a life worthy of the gospel means taking that thing, to get some partners together, and then with seal ask yourself, how in the world can we reach somebody? How in the world can we bless somebody together? So I want to suggest you something. It's what I suggested to my own leadership team at home. I suggested to my leadership team and to the eldership team first, if we want to do that, we as the elders first have to make a time commitment. Because you know what, what we as elders are doing? We're excusing ourselves in Dresden and we're saying, well, we are the pastors. We don't have time to actually invite somebody for coffee. Um, let the foot soldiers do that, you know. And we'll do the organizing of the children's ministry because we're already doing the religious work. We're already the heroes of the Lord. We don't have time to actually meet with somebody and have a coffee and a chat with and share our story because we're already the religious leaders. I said, guys, it doesn't work like that. How in the world can we be an example to the flock? How can we motivate the church to live worthy of the gospel if we, if we don't do this. So I suggested to my eldership team, and we'll see what happens. Let's 
every time we meet, or at least every second week that we meet, share about something that one of us, and we are 13 people, so I hope in, in two weeks at least one of us, 13, had some opportunities to share the gospel. Let's share each, every time we meet about some opportunity, and with the wives is 26, about what happened and how it happened. And, and I said to them, it, I'm not interested in miracle stories. I'm not interested in, in us being the heroes in the sense of, yes, I went to my car dealer and he's, I asked how much is it and, I said, and he said, you know, 800 euros. And I said, well, before I tell you, I, I pay the 800 euros, let me tell you the gospel. And then he got saved and out of the joy of his salvation, he gave me the car for free. I'm not, I'm not looking into these, thing, these things. I'm looking, in the, I'm looking into, the real, into the real stories about how we connect with, with, each, with each other. Like the story that went, how I went to the car dealer. Because it doesn't always end triumphantly. I'm going to the car dealer, and our, the license plate, our, our number license plate, is Dresden, and then LK1020. And we put it on because it stands for Luke 1020. And it says, um, in Luke 10.20, it says, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I, we chose, or I chose, that n license number plate because I get so many tickets for fast driving. I want a reminder. <laughs> now, we chose it, actually, because we said that so often we come into opportunities where people ask, what's your license plate number? And then in Germany, we can choose the license plate number, and people chose all kinds of different things. They chose their birthdays, the names of the pets, and whatever. And then people ask, well, why do you have that license plate number? And so we chose license plate number so that people can ask, well, what does it mean? And then I want to victoriously think myself, you know what that means? It means Luke 10, 20. It's in the Bible, and it says, rejoice that you have eternal life. So here it comes. <laughs> I bring, to my, bring the car to the car dealer because some animal has bitten some some wire through whatever. He repairs it and he says, uh, what's your license plate number? And says, I say, Dresden, LK1020. And he looks at me and says, oh, does it mean anything? In that moment, I, I'm looking for and I'm waiting for faith to rise, power to come, energy to go forth, but it doesn't come. And I sort of sheepishly say, well, it's from the Bible and it means that we're rejoicing that we have eternal life. And the person looks at me and he goes like, all right then. And, con <laughs> and continues saying, it was a total letdown. It was a total disappointment. But that's the stories we need to share. It doesn't matter what's a disappointment. You know, it's the result is not, is not us. But just the sharing, that's the camaraderie. That is the fighting together. We cannot do this alone. We have to encourage each other. We have to go together. So we have to somehow, as a church, create an atmosphere where we're doing it and when we, where we share about what has been done, whether it goes wrong or whether we have success. So often, in the church, we're doing it sometimes a little bit and we don't even hear the result until a very long time. So I have a friend of mine, she came for the deacons, you know, home group leader meeting um, the other day, and she said she has now a boyfriend. His name is Stefan. And I said, Stefan, that's very interesting. 
um, who, is who is Stefan? And I don't know him. And she said to me, he gave his life two years ago. And I go like, oh, really? How did that happen? And he said, well, you talked to him after the church service. And I go like, oh, really? He said, yeah, that talk really helped him. And I didn't know about it. He became a Christian. I didn't even know about it. But if we should have known, you know, we could have encouraged each other. It would have created a certain dynamic where we feel like, yes, this is worth it. Let's go for it. So anyway, I, I don't know how you, how you do it. But somehow, and in Helen, that's sort of your job. Create an atmosphere of sharing where when we share our testimony, there is a community, there's a fellowship, and we are, we're reporting on each other. We're saying, hey, I had the opportunity to that cash, you know, that the person that takes my money on whatever, she was sneezing and her eyes were bawling and she was sick and I was, me bless you with a prayer and I prayed for her and she looked at me and she said, thank you. And that's it, let's, let's do that because it creates an excitement, it creates something where we feel like we're doing this thing together. We're reaching out together for the advance of the gospel because if we do it alone, we will be discouraged. Let me tell you another story. Nadia and I, this already years ago, it, it shows the difference between doing it together and being alone on the journey. Um, we had some American friends come to Dresden and we did a thing that's called dinner and faith. So two families of us, we decided every two weeks we'll put uh, in the calendar dinner with unbelieving friends. And the two couples, we together, during the two weeks, as we live the day, meet people in the car shop, in the, the hairdresser, in the baker, we invite people to our home, says, oh, by the way, we have a friend meeting place. It's called Dinner and Faith, and we'll have dinner together. We'll cook. You are invited to come. And by the way, also, because we're Christians, we'll share a little bit about why we believe. So we never just invited them for for food, but food and faith. Uh, come, and I would love to, we love to get to know you. We always love to meet friends and hear your story, get to know who you are, and so we did that. So we started and said, two weeks, we meet. We talked to a lot of people during those two weeks, invited a lot of people. Friday night comes up. We have cooked together an enormous amount of food, and nobody shows up. So we say, okay, let's not be discouraged. Two weeks, second chance. Two weeks later, we cook food, and it's us again. Only us eating. Third time, how many people came? Still nobody. By that time, I already had decided in my heart, this is not working. I'm giving up. There's only one reason why I continued. I didn't want to be embarrassed in front of that other family I didn't want to be a weak Christian who gives up after three trials. On myself, I would have long ago scrapped that thing. And they as well. But they also didn't want to appear as weak of faith. <laughs> and, so <laughs> and so they said, okay, we'll continue it. So we continued number four, four times. Still nobody shows up. So we said, okay, we'll still continue it. Now it was around Christmas time. When, when we didn't cook that much anymore because our expectations had been really dampered. We come and it's in Advent season and suddenly the doorbell rings and the first two people show up. And we go like, yes, the first two people. And we were hardly about to let them in. The doorbell rings again. 
and it's four more people. And the doorbell rings again, and it's eight more people. And we're getting a panic, like we don't have any food. So quickly we said, what do you have in your freezer? And it was supposed to be that wonderful dinner thing, and at the end we just have bread with butter or something like that, because we didn't have enough food. But on that day, how many people were there? No, I think it was 20 or something like that. Huh? Or without us. Anyway, let's, let's have it 12 people plus us. It was for us, it was outrageous. It was like absolutely amazing. From that day on, we did it again every two weeks. Was there ever a time when there was no, non, no, no, no unbeliever? Not one time where there was not an unbeliever present for two years. Every single second Friday, somebody who was new and not a believer now, not all of them became Christians, but after two years, we counted. After two years, we counted, and we said, how many people did we have for dinner in faith? And how much was it? Like over, 70. over 70 people came, had dinner with us. No and Christian No Christian background, no church, completely, absolutely atheist. Over 70 people. And I would have given up. You cannot do this alone. When we do it alone, this is this thing. Paul actually seriously meant it. You cannot stand together alone. We cannot do this. You cannot say, and, you know, do it for five years, and then after your big success, maybe we'll follow you and do something with you. And cannot do it alone. And needs people who are rallying behind him and says, okay, I know, this is ridiculous. I know it will go wrong many times, but let's give it a try. Let's move forward. We need to do it together as bodies. Yeah. And then 70 people didn't get saved. It was in a single digits, maybe how many? Four, five? At least one of, one of uh, we were two families, a single lady. At the end, she found her husband there. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I was formerly unbelieving, came, came to know Jesus. And you can never look at the appearance. That day, I remember his name is Lars. Lars came the very first time. Lars sat on his couch, eyes on the table over here, and I was explaining the gospel. And Lars looked at me with such a mean, spirited, critical, his eyes and his mouth and his ears and everything said, whatever you say, I don't believe you, and you're wrong, and I hate being here. <laughs> that was in early December, or November, or something like that. Yeah. In January, Holly, that lady, she's also part of the team, she calls me and she says, Lars gave his life to the Lord. I, I, seriously, I said to her, I don't believe it. <laughs> I know you're from America. I know you're making things up. You always see, <laughs> I know you always see things greater and bigger. There is no way, you know. Maybe, maybe you prayed for him and he didn't shrink back or something like that, you know. <laughs> but, but he definitely did not give it. So next time we meet again, there he is. He said, I give my life to Jesus. I said, Lars, I mean Lars, please. Tell me, how did that happen? And he said to me, when we were there before Christmas, the dinner and faith, and you talked about Jesus becoming human and loving me, and I have hope of eternal life, my heart melted, and I said, I want this so bad. I love this. And I go like, Lars, how, can you, how could you have done that to me? You know what your face showed? Your face showed you hated me. <laughs> it, you, could never, you could never see he sat there with such a mean expression, but the Lord did something in his heart. So now they're already, I don't know, 10, 12 years, 15 yeah, years. Have kids. have kids, Christian family, follow the Lord. So anyway. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have to do it together. How, how much time do we have? I just want to show you one thing because then uh, I want to show you because this is so good. Um, look at me, look at me because I want to introduce to you the, the ultimate reason why the fight for the gospel is going to be victorious. Uh, in chapter 2, Paul introduces, first he introduced himself and said, let me give you as my example how I gave up priorities for the advance of the gospel, how I give up privileges for the advance of the gospel. Then he does the same thing with all the people he mentions in the book. And he says, I'll show you how Jesus himself, as the center, as the center of the gospel, he gave up his privileges for the advance of the gospel. And he says in chapter 2, verse 6, you should have the same attitude towards one another that is in Christ Jesus who existed in the form of God, did not regard equality as, as a, um, the, the Greek word is harpazo, that, means, uh, that can mean a, he did not regard equality with God as, what is the right English word? Um, as spoil, as something that's his right to get. So the idea is Christ could have come. He could have come, he could have been born, appear on the earth and said, by the way, I'm the second person of the Trinity, I, I demand obedience right now. Bow down or I will extinguish you. And he did not do that. He did not come up and says, I have a right and you have to do that because I am who I am. But he gave up his right. He humbled himself, became a slave and he humbled him so much that he became obedient. It's also a military term because in the army you're obedient. You became obedient until the point of death even death of a cross. And now the Philippians, in the military mind, go like, oh, that's the ultimate defeat. Because at the end of a military campaign in the first century, when you did not surrender, when the peace offer, the last peace offer was made, and you lose the battle, the most prominent fighters and men will be crucified. Crucifixion is a means of punishing with death uh, the losers of the war. In the Jewish war, um, uh, Titus and Vespasian uh, uh, 70 AD when they surrounded Jerusalem made several peace offers to Jerusalem the peace offers were not accepted so that whenever somebody escaped from the city were crucified on the spot anyway so crucifixion is the ultimate defeat when you're crucified you definitely have lost the battle I mean if there is no hope then it's when you're crucified it's death and again do you remember that Paul prayed and I said I want you to see the things are in reality are different. you remember that? Yeah. Here he, he shows another example, says how it's different from the outside. Jesus' death on the cross looks like ultimate defeat. But I show you something different. Actually, with the resurrection of Christ, it is ultimate victory. You have never ever had a victor like Jesus Christ. And Paul introduces Jesus Christ here in this passage as the ultimate general victoriously. Taking the form of slave, looking like other men, sharing himself in human nature. Verse 8, he humbled himself, become obedient to the point of death. As a result, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Now here comes something curious. That phrase describes the exaltation of Jesus. We have several uh, descriptions of the exaltation of Christ in the scripture. For, for example, in the Gospels, Paul uses the term 
not Paul, the gospel writers use the term sit at my right hand. It's a term of exaltation, of lifting up into position of authority and honor and glory. Here, and only here, we have, an, we have a terminology that is foreign to the New Testament, that the exaltation of Christ is described as a receiving of a name. And you have to ask, or the scholar has to ask the question, why in the world doesn't Paul just borrow some other facts? Why doesn't he just say, therefore God exalted him and set him at the right hand of the Father? That is terminology that's quickly available, could easily done it within the Christian tradition. Why do I have to invent something that nobody other uses? Why do you use terminology that I find nowhere else and you bother church history you know, for another 2,000 years where everybody shakes his hand and says, well, what does the receiving of a name mean? Because the receiving of a name in the first century is a military language for the highest honor a, mili a successful military general can get. Every single time, in, without any exception, in the second, secondary literature, in history books of the first literature, when you have the Greek word, somebody receives a name or I give a name to, it means, the we know the name that that person gets. The name that person gets is the Latin word imperator. It means victorious general. So whenever it says, and I have you some ex examples over here, um, Dio Chrysostom writes, Augustus himself had taken the name and now he, they included the name Imperator and had also given it to Tiberius. Uh, nevertheless, Crassus did not receive the name Imperator as some report, but Caesar only was given the name Imperator. Do you see? Was given the name or he gave him the name. It's always with the name Imperator in it. You will see in a minute that this phraseology became so prominent in, 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 in ancient literature that the people didn't even have to write he gave him the name Imperator, secret, uh, Victorious General. He just had to write, they gave him the name and everybody knew, okay, I know the name, it means Victorious General. Indeed, the name Imperator was given to him, to Drusus, by the soldiers, by acclamation, just as it had been given to Tiberius easily, earlier. Uh, and then there's more. Uh, okay, this is, so, so what happens is every single time in literature when somebody says he received the name, it means he received the name Victorious General. And the name Victorious General is given after a successful campaign, after, uh, uh, after a battle has been victoriously won, the enemy had been conquered, then the army or the Roman Senate would make the official declaration that that emperor is worthy to receive the name. It's a title you, you use for yourself, and from that time on, you're, you're called and you carry the title with you, victorious general. And of course, the emperors, they would print it on the coins. They would say their name, and it says, I have been proclaimed victorious general three times, four times, five times, 12 times, however many battles I fought victoriously. The second one, the second description that we have here, he gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every knee will bow, is also military language, military uh, uh, um, terminology. Did you notice that it did not say all knees in the plural will bow? It says every singular knee will bow. That is something directly from the custom of the first century when a 
when a, a people had been conquered, that people group that had been conquered, they bow one knee like this. And it's, it's a sign of submitting yourself. It's called total surrender. That's what the Germans said to you British guys in 1945. Total surrender. No conditions whatsoever. You are the victor. We acclaim you are the victor. We have no requests. We have no conditions like spare us, spare our families. We surrender all. Our lives in your, in your hands. Here it is. Total defeat on our side. Total victory on yours. And that is something that is very common in the first century. You will see here. You have several coins. Let's just, just go through the coins. You don't have the time. Okay. Do you see every single time here we have somebody who bows the knee? And we'll stop at this one over there. This, by the way, is after the Jewish war in 70 AD. Is something that Jesus predicts what, what will happen, the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24. Here we have a Jewish person on the right-hand side. He bows his knee to Vespasian, and Vespasian prints that coin, and he says, Judea has been conquered. The knee has been bowed. And the message is, when you'll read in literature, is the message is always after a victorious campaign, the, 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 the rider who's been there in the front line, he rides back to Rome and he makes a pronouncement and he wants to say victory, but he makes an announcement and says, Germania has bowed the knee, or the Britons have bowed their knee, which means if they have completely and utterly surrendered and we have been victorious. And so here what, what Paul writes is, he introduces us as a super victorious general because he has been given the name above every name and every knee will bow. Never ever in the ancient history did that ever happen, that all the knees bowed. There's only individual groups. It's only maybe the Spaniards or the Franks or whatever, or the Jewish people, they bowed their knee. But here it says, every single knee will bow. And the idea is Jesus Christ is super victorious general. The world has never seen a general like that. The name of Jesus, every bow will knee, and every tongue will confess. Let me see, I also have a confessing tongue. There we have somebody, he's an Armenian, and he has the bowed knee, and he has the hands up, and you can see the open mouth. He confesses the general who's just uh, uh, conquered him and saying, you are the victorious general. So to make things short and to end the whole thing is, Jesus or Paul introduces the reason. You remember the, the Philippians were discouraged. And Paul says, you need to remember one thing. We have a super victorious general. We have somebody with us who is able to do things that you cannot imagine. He will cause every knee to bow in any way. One day, it doesn't matter whom you encounter, it doesn't matter how strong the opposition is, they, these people will bow their knee to their victorious conqueror. And it opens up a new confidence that sharing the gospel is we are in a victorious campaign because we have a super victorious general. Okay, so sorry for talking too much. Uh, now I want to, uh, can you maybe just, just hand that out, please? This sheet will help you and we will take now uh, five times, five times, five minutes to write down your own story. Remember, the, the aim is in two minutes to tell your own story about how you became a believer in two minutes. And there's two ways to do it. When you became a believer while you were an adult, it is 
fairly easy for you to describe how your life was before Jesus, how you met Jesus, and how your life is now. Because you still remember the days. I remember the days when I was young uh, in college. Uh, I was not a believer, so I can share something about that, how that felt, how I lived life. Then I share the encounter about how the man talked to me, how he read something to me, what it did to my heart, and then I share about what my life is like now. When you did not have that, when you did not have that experience, but when you sort of slowly grew into Christianity, you don't even know when the day, the month, or the year was that you decided that your life belongs to Jesus is because you grew up in a Christian surrounding, you grew up in a Christian family, you use the second alternative. You describe how you grew up with Jesus, but at some point, if it's conscious or not, you must have decided that you still want to believe in Jesus because nobody who just as a child grew up in a Christian family automatically carries on with the faith. With each child, with each young adult, there is a point where you have to decide and go like, why am I continuing what I did when I was four years old or five years old or six years old? So, when you, when you grew up in the Christian family, you tell the story how you grew up in the family with Jesus and why did you decide as an adult to still believe in Christ. And then, of course, you put in actually a little bit of what you believe. And now, the last part is you explain how it, that you belong to Jesus. So, the idea is you have in mind, you have you, you, your story is in three parts. Part one, before Jesus. Part two, the actual encounter, how I became a Christian. And part three, how my life is lived right now. And let me tell you this, how my life is lived right now, it does not mean I was poor, desperate, and I was living in the street, drug addict. I met Jesus, and now I have a carefree, rich, famous life without any problems. That's not the idea. Genuinely tell a genuine story. I had no, like my own story is like, I had no lack of money, I had no lack of recognition, I was working in a famous bank in Germany, and still there was this hole in my heart that said, what is life for? What do you exist for? Then comes the story of the encounter, and then I say, now I believe in Jesus, it doesn't mean that I'm just waking up every morning and hear the angel Gabriel sing and, and being happy every morning, but I have challenges in my life, I have troubles, I worry with my family, but I feel the promise of eternal life. I feel I have, there's a destiny in my life. I live with meaning and that's why I believe in Jesus. And what will happen is, I guarantee you, when you write down your story in two minutes, each one of you will have a powerful story. Doesn't mean, doesn't matter how dramatic or how undramatic on the outside your conversion was. But hearing your testimony at the beginning, I know each one of you has something that when you share it with an unbeliever, it can release something supernatural in the heart, unimaginable. So let's please take the time. How about uh, three minutes? Three, four minutes? Just make yourself some notes. Fill out the story, and then after three minutes, I'll quickly use the restroom. What we'll do is, I'll explain what we'll do in a minute. Okay, let's go.